Welcome. You're listening to the Gideon Warrior Radio Network. Look for us on TalkShoe.com. Type in keyword Gideon Warrior Network. And you can find us and other Israelite speakers at ChristianAmericanMinistries.com and AngloIsraelTruth.com. Please remember, your free will gifts and offerings help us to continue laboring in the vineyard. Please consider visiting our support page. We thank you for visiting our network and sites. It is our prayer you'll be edified by them. Here's the message, and thanks for listening. This is Part 8 in America's Constitutional Idolatry. In Part 7, we had concluded with the Declaration of Independence. I wanted to return to that because I began to consider how the idol is set up, as I mentioned from the story of Jeroboam and 1 Kings, and there's a declaration of worship that is being declared, essentially. And I began to consider the Declaration of Independence very similar to that in terms of a declaration of worship. So that's where we concluded by returning back to the Declaration of Independence, and it does fit into the timeline, as I've tried to do in this message series so far, was to basically travel us along a timeline, a timeline leading up to the point in the time of the Declaration of Independence and the ratification of the Constitution and trying to uh, show us how it evolved, if you will, and came into existence and so forth. And so I felt it was necessary to return to that briefly and discuss it in terms of it as a declaration of worship, if you will. So now we're going to proceed forward in time from the Declaration of Independence to the Constitution. And I've decided to subtitle this Part 8 as Promoting the Function and Principle for Worshiping the Idol. So in other words, what you need, now that you've made a declaration of worship of the idol, you're going to now need to promote the function, the principles, in other words, the rudimentary procedures, if you will, for worshiping the idol. And that's essentially what I see began to happen. Um, certainly many of us would believe and have had the preconceived notions and belief that this was, in fact, you know, promoting the Constitution and teaching people what the parameters of the Constitution were and how it was going to govern and function and that it was laudable, and many of the things that were recorded about it were, in fact, you know, if you will, uh, the propaganda tools, essentially, to bring everybody on board to adopting the Constitution. So let's begin now with James Madison. It was his turn, basically. The Congress had called for a convention for amending the Articles of Confederation, and this was in 1787. When they convened, however, in uh, May 14, 1787, there was not a quorum that was able to be reached, and it would require an additional couple of weeks to convene the full quorum, which did, in fact, occur May 25, 1787. Now, I'll say this at the outset. As we look a bit at how this Constitution came about, what we've been taught and conditioned to believe about the document and its most professed and prized features, there can be no doubt, have been completely eviscerated. The question we have to consider is why? Did such evisceration occur because 
we've just had a bunch of bad leaders? Or did it occur because it was flawed from the beginning? Or perhaps in that, it did not include God, therefore was not and is not as we have believed it was. America is going to have to revisit its foundation, and the decision will have to be made. Will we scrap today's Constitution and rebuild upon our first foundation, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our first love? James Madison is our predominant figure or actor in the convention. John Adams and Jefferson were out of the country, and Madison took copious notes And these notes were kept secret for three decades. Madison's notes convey that Jefferson is the chief magistrate of the Constitution structure. During the 14 days awaiting a quorum, Madison was preparing the Virginia delegates to scrap the Articles of Convention for receiving a new Constitution that he intended to propose. His preeminent question? Quote, why not scrap the Articles of Confederation and start over, end quote. You see, he argued their basic construction was defective. George Withy drafted a code of rules for the committee proceedings. So now we're entering into the Constitutional Convention, 1787. George Withy's code of rules had these criteria. First, it was to be in secret. Secondly, There would be one vote in each state. Thirdly, individual delegates would be polled periodically for positions on an issue. But that polled vote was not recorded until the issue was debated. Washington's polled vote was nearly always recorded by Madison. The fourth, each delegate had two opportunities to speak and more opportunity upon consent. Fifth, There were no distractions allowed. Six, all debate would be addressed to the president of the convention to avoid hotly contested arguments between individuals. Now, I'm not going to go into the 15 resolves of Virginia, the Hamilton plan and the New Jersey plan and others. While these plans were being offered at the Constitutional Convention, they were really not given any significance and many of those delegates then left the convention. In fact, it was about six weeks that had passed, and on July 10th, the last two New York delegates had left the convention and did not return. A couple of weeks later, the 26th of July, was when Franklin rose in the convention and gave his speech pleading with the delegates to implore prayer by a motion, and the motion was neither debated nor voted on in the affirmative. What was the sticky issue? Election of president and vice president. More than 60 ballots were cast before consensus was achieved. Some have attempted to say that this is a key moment when the biblical model from Deuteronomy 1, 13-15, was diligently applied, in that a council of wise men or special elections was the best method to select the national leader or head of the nation, who would be those men of understanding and known among their tribes, as Deuteronomy 1, 13-15 contemplates. So the framers adopted what is now known as the Electoral College. 
In its original intent, one might consider and be inclined to believe that it was a reasonable solution to providing a leader for a nation. The biblical record conveys that God appointed or selected Moses, and it also is understood that God was involved in the appointment or the selection of some of Israel's kings and prophets. And since it appears that God is not doing so today, now we must therefore appoint our own. Well, this idea, however, neglects the prophecies, such as those of Hosea 1.11 and Luke 1, as well as God's unequivocal command that he would be their leader. This understanding would completely eliminate the need for a national head at all. In fact, if the heads of tens, fifties, hundreds, thousands, etc. were applied, these heads would be appointed heads of the people, and God would be whom each of these would be accountable to. America's first presidential election of 1789 did employ the electoral process as intended, as each state put forth the names of individuals as candidates for the office of presidents. In this original process, each delegate had an opportunity to interview or evaluate on behalf of the state the candidates and cast a ballot in accordance with Article 2 and the subsequent amendments of the 12th and 22nd Amendments. This original form this original form admittedly eliminates political parties and thousands of positions gifted to supporters and affiliates once elected. Interview of these candidates could still be televised so citizens of the states could see or hear the evaluation. However, this process does not provide a remedy to withdraw a candidate's name and a new ballot be cast in the event some disqualifier subsequently became known before the ballots were counted. So while it could be considered a valid and effective method, this national leader is still a questionable need at all. It could be employed for the purpose of a need for a commander-in-chief in a time of invasion. However, don't forget, in all things, obedience to God is required. Consider a number of states beginning to degrade the commands of God by virtue of climate or other economic attractiveness, and they seem to have good leaders and enjoy seemingly abundant prosperity, and this encourages some of the heads or leaders to nominate these rather unsavory candidates who are duly appointed leaders of other states or families, and the unsavory become elected because of the perception of a successful leader in another state. This would, of course, lead to the deterioration of the virtue of that state and the nation as God's principles are compromised or set aside completely. We have numerous examples of this in the biblical as well as the secular record. In 1 Samuel alone, we see the sons, that is, other state leaders or heads, they were the king's sons, not following in the path of God's righteousness and the people desiring to be like the others around them as more desirable or less burdensome than the corruptness of the sons. History, guided by our experience, should prove to us daily the vigilance required on the part of the body of Christ, that is, God's members, to be willing to pluck the eye if it offends or cut off the member which is offensive, contrary or adversarial to the will of God. The record in 1 Samuel, as I've conveyed numerous times, 
shows us God's willingness to allow our free agency even to do something as foolish as demanding a king when he was Israel's king. In spite of everything he could convey to us through Samuel about such a decision, he offered this promise. If you and your king will abide in me, I will be with you and your king. So, as it pertains to the Constitution, forming committees of the leaders for the selection or recommendation of candidates is not without issues and concerns either. Using, for example, the United States geographical division into states means that each state or the committee of heads would likely nominate someone known to the people of the geographical state as many individuals outside of such geographical confines likely would be unknown. And so it would be absolutely imperative that the candidate be fully evaluated by the committee heads or appointees and there be adequate opportunity for the citizens to likewise see and hear the evaluation and to bring forth issues or concerns. Not everyone sees or hears things the same, and so in that sense, judgments could be clouded by a previous perception or understanding of an individual candidate. It may be necessary for three candidates to be put forth, maybe a local or state candidate, and a regional, maybe a five or an eight state region or something along that order, and perhaps one that would be of a national nature, a person that might have already been involved in some national capacity previously. Now again, I remind you the national leader or representative is truly unnecessary, and from the biblical model of Deuteronomy 1, 13-15, Moses' duty was judging the hard matters. That was too difficult for the other heads. So the application, once again, shows us the potential fallacy of trying to push the fat foot of the stepsister constitutional president or vice president into the biblical model to serve in a capacity entirely unrelated to the biblical intention. I think you can see why it took the committee of the Constitutional Convention 60 ballots on this very issue of a national leader and vice president. Additionally, it bears mentioning that the party system, which only took a mere decade to develop by 1800, is this system's, that is the electoral, worst nemesis, as it has totally destroyed the autonomous intent of the electoral college as a means of selecting a qualified national leader or head. The party system bastardizes the whole intent. It's another case of an unbiblical method used in an attempt to force biblical results. This is one of these points where we would do well to ask, if James Madison, that is the father of the Constitution, could see the need or wisdom for scrapping the Articles of Confederation, certainly we today can see the need or wisdom in scrapping this Constitution. Certainly this president and vice president, as it serves no purpose at all, what is the purpose of the president? Some say, well, this position drives policy of the country. Well, is that good? The only way this could be good would be in the interest and will of the Creator, for the preservation of the people in accordance with God's will. The separate powers doctrine actually conveys this belief to be an error. Some say that he's the chief executive, 
to carry out the legislative will of the Congress. Well, this is true. But if those legislative enactments are contrary to God's will and law, this position would have to serve as a deterrent to legislative edicts which are contrary to God's will and law. And thus, this leader would be required to veto the legislative enactment adversarial to God's commands and not a rubber stamp for any and all legislative edicts, party desired or otherwise. In fact, all experience has shown all of the agencies under the umbrella of the executive administrator, that is the president, are needless agencies of bureaucracies. All of the secretary positions of the president's cabinets are also, therefore, unnecessary. Likewise, administrative law, which is a result of administrative agencies authorized by Congress, is also implemented by president and is unnecessary. Roosevelt himself created more than a dozen, as well as did Woodrow Wilson with his New Deal. This is done without any congressional review or review from the representatives of the people. I am confident that as these messages go out and the subjects are put under a proper and diligent review, many will be able to formulate list upon list of these agencies which can be eliminated as simply non-biblical in their nature, intent, and ultimately their function and existence. Incidentally, the presidential office has also led to the making of agreements with foreign nations without the required treaty process and power granted to the Senate through the Constitution. Impeachment for these violations have never been applied by the Senate either. Now, I've diverted slightly here, but let's swing back to the Constitutional Convention. As I indicated, it was about July, and it's in fact July 26, 1787, when the main components were formulated into a final draft, which was signed and approved September 17, 1787, and a commitment made for the first order of Congress to include a Bill of Rights. In the ensuing months, several state legislators approved and ratified the Constitution. Now, as we walk back in time, one cannot escape the emotion which emanates from the perception of a historic and momentous event occurring right before our eyes, and in fact before those of that era's eyes. But after the emotion settled, a nagging question persists. Is the document the framers drafted able to withstand the evil propensities of men? After all, Franklin's admission during the Constitutional Convention, quote, the small progress we have made after four to five weeks, close attendance and continual reasonings with each other, is, methinks, a melancholy proof of the imperfection of the human understanding, end quote. In spite of this, and as the elder of all the men at 80, he was unable to convince the attendees of that convention to seek heavenly guidance in their deliberations. And remember something, many of the colonists' leaders were themselves church elders who held administrative positions in the various assemblies of their colonies. More than a dozen of the 55 delegates were in fact ministers. But because of denominational indifferences, the thought by Franklin of prayers offered was believed to be too divisive. 
and besides the convention had no budget, and none should be asked or even expected to pray without compensation. A most unconscionable fact about that convention. Now many will contend, well, the framers rejected nearly every aspect of the English principles of government, and that was a good thing. However, they also rejected much of the divine immutable laws of God, which the colonial founders 150 years earlier invoked without question or pause as their governing principles. Principally, the framers rejected God as their king. The battle cry for independence, no king but King Jesus, had fallen to the ground with the blood-soaked soldiers. I've even heard it contended that the framers came closer to perfection than any nation in more than 5,000 years. I know I'm no theological scholar, but it would seem apparent to me that that would ignore many of the kings of Israel whom God was pleased with, but still had their faults. During the final weeks now, leading to the full ratification by the necessary nine states, New Hampshire was in opposition to the Constitution and believed it had all the necessary components to rob the citizens of New Hampshire of all their basic rights. And a solemn assembly was called for, and Samuel Langdon tied this Constitution to the Israelites. Quoting in part now from the microprint archive of Samuel Langdon, quote, When the first Israelites came from the bondage of Egypt, they were a multitude without any other order than what had been kept up very feebly under the ancient patriarchal authority. Yet in the short space of about three months, they were reduced into civil and military order. Able men were chosen out of all their tribes and made captains and rulers of thousands and hundreds, fifties and tens. And these commanded them as military officers and acted as judges in matters of common controversy. A government thus settled on Republican principles required laws. But God did not leave a people wholly unskilled in legislation to make laws for themselves. He took this important matter into his own hands. And besides the moral laws of the two tablets, which directed their conduct as individuals, gave them a complete code of judicial laws. They were not numerous, but concise and plain, and easily applicable to almost every controversy which might arise between man and man in every criminal case which might require the judgment of the court. The judicial laws were founded on the plain immutable principles of reason, justice, and social virtue, such as are always necessary for civil society. Life and property were well guarded, and punishments were equitably adapted to the nature of every crime. In particular, murder stands foremost among capital crimes, and is defined with such precision and so clearly distinguished from all cases of accidental and undesigned killing, that the innocent were in no danger of punishment and the guilty could not escape. Let us now consider the national worship God established among this people, on which their obedience to the moral law very much depended. For unless they paid constant reverence and homage to their God, agreeable to his nature and will, they would soon break loose from all other obligations to morality. How unexampled was this quick progress of the Israelites from abject slavery, ignorance, and almost total want of order 
to a national establishment perfected in all its parts, far beyond all other kings and states, from a mere mob to a well-regulated nation under a government and laws far superior to what any other nation could boast. They never adhered in practice to the principles of their civil polity. They received their laws from God, but they did not keep it. They neglected their government, corrupted their religion, and grew dissolute in their morals. And in such a situation, no nation under heaven can prosper. Instead of the twelve tribes of Israel, we may substitute the thirteen states of the American Union and see this application plainly offering itself, vis-a-vis that as God in the course of his kind providence had given you excellent constitution of government, founded on the most rational, equitable, and liberal principles by which all that liberty is secured, which people can reasonably claim, and you are empowered to make righteous laws for promoting public order and good morals. And as he has moreover given you by his own Son, Jesus Christ, who is far superior to Moses, a complete revelation of his will and perfect system of true religion, plainly delivered in the sacred writings, It will be your wisdom in the eyes of the nations and your true interest and happiness to confirm your practice, excuse me, conform your practice in the strictest manner to the excellent principles of your government, adhering faithfully to the doctrine and commands of the gospel, and practice every public and private virtue. By this you will increase in numbers, wealth, and power, and obtain reputation and dignity among the nations whereas the contrary conduct will make you poor, distressed, and contemptible. The God of heaven has not indeed visibly displayed the glory of his majesty and power before our eyes as he came down in the side of Israel, nor has he written with his own finger the laws of our civil polity. But the signal... But the signal interpositions of divine providence in saving us from a powerful irritated nation in giving us a Washington to be captain general of our armies and making us twice triumphant over numerous armies and finally giving us peace with a large territory and acknowledged independence. All these laid together fall little short of real miracles and a heavenly charter of liberty for these United States. Preserve your government with the utmost attention and solicitude For it is the remarkable gift of heaven from year to year. Be careful in the choice of your representatives and all the higher powers of government. Fix your eyes upon men of good understanding and known honesty, men of knowledge improved by experience, men who fear God and hate covetousness, who love truth and righteousness and sincerely wish the public welfare. Beware of such as are cunning rather than wise, who prefer their own interest to everything whose judgment is partial or fickle, and whom you would not willingly trust with your own private interests. When meetings are called for the choice of your rulers, do not carelessly neglect them or give your votes with indifference, but act with serious deliberation and judgment as a most important matter, and let the faithful of the land serve you. Let not men openly irreligious and immoral become your legislators, For how can you expect good laws to be made by men who have no fear of God and who boldly trample on the authority of his commands? If this legislative body are corrupt, 
you will soon have bad men for counselors, corrupt judges, unqualified justices, and officers in every department who will dishonor their stations. Therefore, be always on your guard against parties and the method of unworthy men, and let distinguished merit always determine your vote. And when all and and when all places in government are filled with the best men you can find, behave yourselves as good subjects. Obey the laws. Cheerfully, subject to such taxation as the necessities of the public call for. Give tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor is due, as the gospel commands you. Never give countenance to turbulent men who wish to distinguish themselves and rise to power by forming combinations and inciting insurrections against government, for this can never be the right way to redress real grievances. I call upon you also to support schools in all your towns, that the rising generation may not grow up in ignorance. It is a debt you owe to your children and to God to whom they belong. I call upon you to preserve the knowledge of God in the land and attend to the revelation written to us from heaven. If you neglect or renounce the religion taught and commanded in the Holy Scriptures, think no more of freedom, peace, and happiness. May the general government of these United States, when established, appear to be the best which the nations have yet known, and be exalted by uncorrupted religion and morals. And may the everlasting gospel diffuse its heavenly light and spread righteousness, liberty, and peace through the whole land. End quote. While all this was now going on, and the ratification in process, the press was busy cranking out article upon article from Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, James Madison, under a pseudonym name, the Publius, to sell the colonists with a comprehensive commentary on the function and principles embodied in the Constitution. It was known as the Federalist Papers. Virginia, New Hampshire, New York were just a few votes apart when ratified. Although already ratified and in operation, Rhode Island had not yet done so. And true to constitutional form, by a vote in the Senate, it voted to cut off all commercial relations with Rogue Island, as it was called, and treat it as a foreign nation. Under this duress, it ratified 34 to 32, May 29, 1790. It was just a year earlier in April of 1789 that Washington was sworn in as president and John Adams as vice president. So here we were in less than six months. All right, so here we are in that timeline. Let's start here and we'll pick up the rest of this in part nine. Once again, I remain thankful for the opportunity to minister under those of the New Covenant, as Hebrews 8.8 informed us of. This is Doug Nelson, trusting you will hear these words one day. Well done, thou good and faithful servant.